Amen. All right. I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. We are in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 20, mostly all the way, all the way through chapter 21 uh, here today. We're going to be talking about the birth of Isaac and a few other things as well. Now, today's lesson is about spiritual highs and lows. And if you've been a Christ follower for very long, then the mountaintop experiences when you feel so close to God are right there alongside those deep valleys uh, experiences when you feel so far from God, right? Amen? Now, the Bible describes Abraham as a hero of the faith. And I certainly agree with that description. I mean, some of the things that we've seen Abraham do and some of the things that he has yet to do are truly remarkable examples of a man who was filled with a spirit of an all-powerful God. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to ever see my heroes stumble. I mean, the Lone Ranger never told a lie. He was never mean to people. And he always rescued the girl at the end of the story, right? And he always defeated the bad guys. Now, my heroes are John Wayne, who always does the same thing. The Lone Ranger. Uh, and, you know, those, those, the perfect movie, the absolutely perfect movie, is there's a hero, there's a heroine that gets in, into distress, the hero fights the bad guys, almost loses, almost right to the very end, and then he wins in the end, and he gets the girl, and they ride off in the sunset. That is a movie theme that I could watch over and over and over and over, and, and still do, uh, and still do. I, I love, now, my heroes are not supposed to stumble. They're not supposed to fall. And that's just the way it works. They're not supposed to do those kinds of foolish things that we do all of the time, right? Especially twice. Yeah, especially twice. So when you have those kind of expectations for your heroes, chapter 20 of the book of Genesis is a chapter that you just kind of like to skip over. You know, and let's just not read that, that chapter, Okay. And that is because Abraham does all of those things that I just talked about. He lies. He's mean to Hagar and Ishmael. And worse, he repeats the same sin that he committed when he went down into the land of Egypt and lied concerning Sarah, saying she is my sister. So it's the same story all over again. And you'd think, by this time in Abraham's life, he'd have known better, right? But in the end, Abraham defeats the bad guy or that sin that has been in his life. He obeys God's commands and he gets the only girl that God has wanted for him from the very beginning, which is Sarah. So it all works out in the end. But man, I sure hate reading about it in chapter 20, right? Yet this story really tells the truth about all of us as Christians. Because I don't care how many times I say I like to watch those movies, they're still just a movie, and it's not real life. And as Christians, we, no matter how great we think we are, 
Each time we try to solve our problems using the world's methods, using our own strength, instead of depending on God, what do we do? We fail. We fail. And there is nothing more miserable than a Christian who has failed because he did not depend on God. Now, the lost see this person as the hypocrite that they are, and rightfully so. And they want nothing to do with that kind of shallow belief. And, you know, that, that, that is a number one reason why people don't want to become Christians is because of the hypocrites that they see. Now, I want to say this about today's lesson. I'm going to give you guys a little inside baseball to Bible study, okay? Now, most of you guys, it, it, this is obvious, but gets down into a little bit deeper uh, into the methodology of teaching. So every lesson from the Bible has a spiritual application to our own lives. They teach us how we can spend more time on those mountaintop experiences, but most importantly, how to deal with the deep valley experiences that we face, that we will face. It's not maybe, we will face them. And so these Bible study lessons are to teach us how to deal with those deep valley experiences. Now, my goal is to bring those spiritual lessons out in a way that you can learn from. And, and your job as a student is to apply these lessons to your life and make them real to you. I'm not just up here telling you things. You've got to take what we talk about and you've got to apply it to your life if you really want to become a mature Christian. Now, there are... Two types of lessons that, that I teach, basically. Uh, there's more, but two major categories of, of lessons that I teach. And the first is where we take Scripture, and we really dig deep into the spiritual application of the verses that are the text of the lesson. Now, generally in those lessons, we will use just a few verses out of the book uh, that we're studying, but we'll use a lot of other verses from other chapters to support the uh, spiritual learning that is the focus of the lesson. So you guys have seen me do that. I'll take one verse and I'll spend two weeks on one verse, right? Giving descriptions of and lessons from that. That's kind of why we stayed in chapter 17 for so long, right? We, we were digging deep and deep. Now the second type of lesson is where we generally are telling a story that is found in the Bible and in the book of Genesis, it's usually about one of the heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and or Joseph. And it is from these stories that we find lessons on how to live the life of faith that God has given us. Now, God gives us these lessons so that we can do his work in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why are we here on this earth? Why does God left us here uh, when you guys are 80 years old and why has God left you here that long? It's so that you can share the gospel of Christ with others. That's really the primary reason, right? Now, for without faith, you can't live the life that God has given you, right? And so these stories that we're talking about, about Abraham and Jacob and, and others, they are teaching you how to live that life of faith. Now, because without faith that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing for God. Nothing. Witnessing without faith is like eating sausage gravy without a biscuit. Right? It's all sauce and no substance. 
It's works without faith. And you know we can't do anything without faith. Now, both types of these lessons are powerful teaching methods that help us to live the victorious Christian life, a life at the center of God's will for us. Now, most people like one type of lesson over the other. There are different types of teaching methods and different types of learning methods. Some people like discussion classes. Some people like lecture classes. I hate discussion classes, but I can do them. I like lectures. I grew up being taught by lecture in schools and, and so forth, and that's what, how I like to learn. But others like to, to have discussion. But most people like one type of lesson, either the deep dive into a single verse or a story over the other. But in truth, God uses both types of messages in the same way that Jesus spoke in parables, or he gave a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount, right? And today, we have before us the story of Abraham and the birth of Isaac. And we're going to start with another period where Abraham stumbles as part of his spiritual highs and lows that he's going to go through in these two chapters. And so, any questions about what I just said? Uh, anything? Yeah, a little bit of inside baseball and teaching and so forth. And the reason I went through that is because we've had some people tell me that, you know, we really, really need to have just a, a lesson on how to share the gospel. And I said, okay, before you learn how to share the gospel, you got to learn how to live a life of faith. And if you can't live the life of faith, you're a hypocrite, and your witness isn't going to be worth squat. So it's not that you don't share the gospel, but you got to get that foundation uh, there as well. And you got to have that love for sharing the gospel with other people uh, as well. So anyway, let's start off with chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And Abraham journeyed from thence towards the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. Now, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? It sounds like what happened down in Egypt, right? So Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, because this is truly interesting. Abimelech probably had a harem full of the most beautiful 19- and 20-year-old girls that could be found anywhere in his kingdom. And yet he looked upon Sarah with desire, who was how old? 90 years old. Okay. 90 years old at that time. Now, Sarah, in her own words, described herself as old and stricken with age, right? Now, my only explanation is that God must have put his hand of restoration upon Sarah as he prepared her for the birth of Isaac, right? Now, in any case, Sarah was a rare beauty, and, and that is true. She was a rare beauty, and Abimelech took her from Abraham. Now, in the verses that follow this, God visits Abimelech in a dream. And he tells us that Abraham is actually a prophet of God, and then warns him that Abraham and Sarah have lied to him, and that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And then he tells him of the consequences that he's going to face because he took Sarah from Abraham. Now, Abimelech, to his credit, believed God and what God had told him. 
and certainly feared the punishment of God. And then angrily, Abimelech, he calls old Abraham before him to give an explanation of this behavior. And he says, how could a prophet of God do these things? Do you not believe the words of God? Look at what your deceit and lies have done to me. And one of the consequences is that God made his entire harem and wives and everything barren. They could not have children. Now, look what you have done to me. Look at what your lies have done. Chapter 20, verse 11, And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. So once again, we see that Abraham did not trust God. He felt that he was moving down into a godless place. Don't know why he did that, but anyway, he did. Moving down into a godless place. And then he had to take matters into his own hands to protect himself. But he finds out that Abimelech has a high sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, it may not match our own sense of right and wrong, but Abimelech puts a tremendous value upon the character and apparently is a man who knows God and believes God's words. Now, unfortunately, by his actions, our hero Abraham doesn't show the same confidence in God. Verse 12 says, and yet indeed, and this is Abraham speaking, explaining himself. He says, and yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So now Abraham's kind of letting it all out. And he says, well, to tell the truth, it's only half a lie, right? Only half a lie. Sarah is my half-sister, and she is my wife. Well, now, of course, that just makes everything okay, right? Because it's only half a lie. And then, so he keeps on going. Verse 13, And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me. And at every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. Now, it's obvious that Abraham did not have complete confidence and trust in God. And so when they started out, he and Sarah came and made it a pact that anywhere they went where it looked like as if Abraham might be killed because of his wife, Sarah would say that Abraham was her brother. And they'd use it down in Egypt. And of course, it was so successful down in Egypt, right? No, it failed miserably, right? You'd think they'd learn from their lessons, but they didn't. And unfortunately, Abraham is a lot like us and that we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. Now, of course, I know that I'm the only one in this room that has ever committed the same sin more than once, right? Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> now, so we see Abraham... Standing before Abimelech without a good excuse to explain the behavior of someone that is called to be a prophet of God. And first he says that it was only half a lie because Sarah really was his sister. And then he digs the hole a little deeper by explaining that he did all this because he did not have enough faith in God to protect him and Sarah. Now, what a horrible mess for a prophet of God to be in. Abraham was supposed to be a testimony of the impact and power that God has on our lives. And yet he did not trust in that power enough to depend on God for protection. 
And when you think about it, it really is a wonder to me that any lost person ever gets saved. One of the best examples they have of the Christian life is one of us. Now, to be honest, how often do we fail to trust God? How often do we use the world's methods to solve our problems? And again, I'm speaking of myself more than I am anyone else. Why is it that we never learn from our mistakes? And with that said, we're going to move on in the story to the birth of Isaac. Like I said, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about Abraham's failure because he's one of my heroes, and especially one that is a repeat of his sin in Egypt. So now we go from the spiritual low of Abraham with Abimelech to a spiritual high for Abraham. God is finally going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and give him a son that will provide the seed of a promised people and the seed of a promised Savior. Chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah had conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. My, 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 there are some tremendous words of biblical truth in these verses. This is one I could camp on for a little while. We won't because I'm telling a story today, but I could camp on this one. Woo! Now, the first thing you will notice is that there is a very striking similarity between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Christ. Notice that verse 2 tells us that Isaac was born at the set time God had promised. So the birth of Isaac was a fulfillment of prophecy that God had made to Abraham. He had promised Abraham a seed almost 25 years ago when he called him out of the land of the Chaldees. And then when the Lord visited Abraham with the two angels, in a story we covered here not too long ago, he had given Abraham a set time of the birth. Now in comparison, we are told that Jesus came in the fullness of time as God had promised. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God set forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. So the birth of Jesus was also the fulfillment of prophecy that God had made to Abraham. Jesus was the seed, which was part of the Abrahamic covenant that he was given. Now next we see that the birth of Isaac was a miraculous birth. It was contrary to nature. Verse 1 tells us, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And in comparison, the birth of Jesus was a miraculous birth. It was contrary to nature. Matthew 1.18 says, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then next, we see that Isaac was named before his birth. Abraham and Sarah were told that they were going to have a son, that they were going to name him Isaac. And in comparison, we see that Jesus was named before his birth. The angel said unto Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In Matthew one twenty one, And then next we see that God had to deal with both Sarah and Abraham. They had to recognize that they could do nothing in regards to this. That it would be impossible for them to have a child under their own power. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. In other words, the birth of Isaac 
must be a birth that they really had nothing to do with. It was beyond the power of man. It was a gift from God, granted by the power and the grace of God. Now, in comparison, the gospel tells us that God had to deal with both Mary and Joseph. They had to recognize that they could do nothing in regards to this. Mary had not known a man, and yet the Holy Spirit visited her to accomplish this miracle. A virgin birth was beyond the power of Mary or Joseph. But it was a gift from God, granted by the power and the grace of God, just like it was with Abraham and Sarah. And then God had to deal with Joseph to show him the love and compassion not to reject Mary. And then next, Isaac was a particular joy to his father. It says, And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Now, we've said this before, but the name Isaac means laughter. It means laughter. This was the name Abraham gave his son because at the time, when God made the announcement that he would have a son, he laughed because of the sheer joy in it all. Now, in comparison, the Bible tells us that Jesus was also a particular joy to his father. God uh, the Father spoke out of heaven and said what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in Matthew 3.17. And then next, Isaac was obedient to his father even unto death. So in chapter 22, we're going to see that this boy Isaac was offered up by his father. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Isaac was not a small boy of eight or nine years old. Isaac was actually a full-grown man when this took place, and he was an obedient to his father, even unto death. Now, there are some commentaries, and it doesn't tell us, so I can't say this. Some commentaries that even say he was 33 years old, just like Jesus when he was crucified. Okay? Now, I can't prove that. But that's just what some of the commentaries say. Now, in comparison, the gospel tells us that the Lord Jesus was obedient to his Father, even unto death. Jesus Christ went to the cross in obedience to his Father to die for your sin and for mine. It is through his death and resurrection, through the covering of his precious blood, that we as believers have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, in addition to the similarities between the births of Isaac and Jesus, there were two specific miracles mentioned in connection with Isaac's birth. Now, the first one we see is that there was the miracle of the exact nature of the forecast. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 21 again. And the Lord visited Sarah, and look at what I've underlined, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah, as he had spoken, and for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Now, three times in those first two verses is the, uh, the forecast or the prophecy mentioned. And only God can issue prophecy. There are countless soothsayers and fortune tellers and prognosticators and astrologers that can only guess at the future. Outside of scriptures, all forecasts, all prognostications and fortunes are riddled with ambiguity, error, and fraud, not to mention satanic deception. But God can describe the details of a future event with the exactness and the detail as if it happened yesterday. Nine months ago, 
God had told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son at a set time. And so it was. Nine months later, the child was born in defiance of all natural law. Then there was the miracle of the exact nature of the fulfillment. Verses 3 through 7 of chapter 21. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God had made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children such? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, notice that God promised Isaac would be born, and then what happened? Isaac was born. And verse 6 tells us, And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. Now, Abraham laughed, and Sarah laughed, and as God had said, they called the little boy Isaac. God has kept his word. Isaac was born. And verse 8 says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. So now when Isaac was weaned, Abraham gave a great feast. He wanted the world to know of the boy's development. Now no longer did he feed on his mother's milk. He was growing up. He was ready for a meat. Now this is a truth that is right there for us as growing Christians. Are you still a baby Christian still feeding on milk? 1 Peter 2.2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. So when we are newborn Christians, we desire the sincere milk of the word. And that's great. The sincere milk of the word of God explains how your life has changed and the promises that God has made to you. Now, unfortunately, that is where too many Christians remain. They stay as babes and are never weaned from the milk of Psalms 23 and John chapter 14. As wonderful as those two chapters are, yet Paul tells us in Hebrews 5:13 through 14, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses, exercise to discern both good and evil. So again, what's the purpose of these lessons? To get you guys the meat and the potatoes of the Word of God that you can apply and use skillfully the Word of God. It is incumbent on us as believers to move on to that meat and potatoes of God's Word. We have to learn the power of being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have to learn how that power can give us the ability to live the life of a Christian. How that power can make us a light unto the world that will draw men to Christ. We have to live a life that's different from the world. It is the Holy Spirit that enables to, uh, to, uh, to do that. And it is how God's impact on our life stands as testimony to what He can accomplish in our lives. Now I can only imagine the feast that is in heaven when God sees a believer learning more of his spiritual truths and living more in his word of life. Now, I imagine there's quite, uh, quite a ceremony that goes on, right? 
Yeah. And then we move on, and we have Hagar and Ishmael cast out as part of our story. Verses 9 and 10. And Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Now Sarah sees old Ishmael mocking the new boy, Isaac. And so we begin to see the true nature and character of Ishmael. Now up to this point, Ishmael had been the apple of Abraham's eye. But now, with the appearance of this other son in the family, Ishmael begins to show his true color. And this story is a symbol of our two natures in life. You know, there are four people seen playing a significant part in this story. Isaac and Ishmael, Sarah and Hagar. All four stand in a special relationship to Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael represent the two natures of the believer. Ishmael standing for the flesh, or that old nature, and Isaac for the new nature that is given to us when we are saved. Ishmael was the fruit of the flesh, and Isaac was the fruit of faith. So Hagar and Sarah, on the other hand, they represent the principles of work and faith, law and grace. The birth of the new demands the expulsion of the old. Now, But the move was up to Abraham. For he and he alone could take the decisive step. Ishmael and Hagar both had to be dealt with. Both had to be cast out, no matter how painful the process was. Sarah and later God would tell Abraham that he should cast out this bondwoman and her son. You see, Abraham could no longer depend on works or law. He had to depend on faith. That which was born of the flesh must be cast out. There was to be no compromise, no middle ground. And for the believer, there must be a complete break with the old nature if the new nature is to develop and occupy all of the believer's heart. It was a hard lesson for Abraham, and it is a hard lesson for us as well. You know, that old nature is very hard to put away. But once we see it through the eyes of God as sin, there really is no other choice that remains. The old nature and its works and principles represented by Ishmael and Hagar, they must be forever dethroned and cast out. Unfortunately, the ugly truth about ourselves has to be faced. And Paul describes this truth as he describes himself in Romans 7:18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present within me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So now once you become a believer, you have to make a decision as to which nature you're going to live by. You have to make a decision in this matter of yielding to the Lord. You either have to permit the Holy Spirit to move into your life, or else you have to go through life controlled by the flesh. There is no third alternative for the child of God. The son of the bondwoman must be put out. That is exactly what we have here in Genesis. The son of the bondwoman, Hagar, had to be put out. Verse 11 says, And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his own son. Now, after all, as you think about it, as far as the flesh is concerned, Ishmael is Abraham's son just as much as Isaac is. Isaac 
had just been born, but Ishmael had been in the home for 13 years. And Abraham was attached to him. And the scripture tells us that it was a very grievous thing for Abraham to send him away. Now, this is demanded because God did not approve of the thing which Sarah and Abraham did. And God cannot accept Ishmael. And this is sin, and that's why he can't accept it. God did not approve of it, and as a result, even though it was a heartbreak to Adam, he had to send the boy away. As a believer, you cannot live in harmony with both natures. You are going to have to make a decision. James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, this explains the instability and the insecurity among many Christians today. They want to go with the world, and yet they want to go with the Lord. They are spiritual schizophrenics, trying to do both, and you cannot do that. Now, the Greeks, they had a race in which they put two horses together, and the rider would put one foot on one horse and the other foot on the other horse, and the race would start. Well, it was a great race as long as those two horses worked together, right? You and I have two natures. One is a black horse, and one is a white horse. It would be great if they would go together, if they would just work together, right? But they will not work together. The white horse goes one way, and the black horse goes the other way. Well, now your legs only go so far, right? you got to make a decision which horse you're going to stay with. And and you got to make up your minds who you're going to go with, whether you're going to live by that old nature or you're going to live by the new nature. There's no middle ground. You can't ride in between the two of them, right? So this is why we are told to yield ourselves to God. In Romans 6.13 it says, Yield yourselves unto God, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Paul goes on to say that what the law could not do do through the weakness of the flesh, the Spirit of God can now accomplish. The law tried to control man's old nature and failed. Now the Spirit of God, empowering the new nature, can accomplish what the law could never do in each of our lives. So the character of Ishmael begins to be revealed. And this is the nature that we find manifested later on in the Arab nation, a nation that is antagonistic and whose hand is against his brother. And this has been the picture of Ishmael all down through the centuries. Genesis 21, verses 12 through 13. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. So Abraham now is faced with the command of God. And God tells him, and all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. Now this time Sarah was correct in in wanting them to be uh, uh, cast out. And God commanded Abraham to do just as she had asked. And then Abraham is provided the comfort of God. Verse 12 tells us, For an Isaac shall thy seed be called. And God directs Abraham's eyes toward Isaac. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. God tells Abraham that his promise is in the new child. Now it is a truly amazing fact 
that when we as Christians cut off the flesh and its works, Christ will always be clearer to us. All too often, our view of Him is obscured by the things of the world that we allow in our lives, which is exactly what Satan wants from us, to have our eyes focused on Satan rather than on Christ. God tells Abraham not to worry. He says, And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. So Abraham was comforted by the renewed promise of God to make a nation of Ishmael. And verse 14 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. But now here we see Hagar and Ishmael being cast out. Now notice that the verse tells us that Abraham took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar. So the first question that comes to mind is, why didn't Abraham provide them with more provisions than this? Yeah? Out into the desert with bread and a bottle of water, right? So Abraham was a wealthy man. I mean, he could easily have provided cattle and tents and probably even camels for the journey. Now, the Scriptures don't tell us why Abraham didn't give them more, but it's certainly possible that it was because he knew they could not defend themselves, and the more they had, the bigger the target they would be. The bigger the caravan is, the bigger the target, right? But who knows? The spiritual lesson behind Abraham's action, though, is clear enough. We are to make no provision for the flesh. Only harsh measures will do. Once you have walked away from an earthly passion, you cannot provide encouragement to it or indulge it or it will come roaring back like a lion into your life. Verses 15 and 16 says, And the water was spent in a bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and set her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. Now notice it's not very long before Hagar was crushed in. The water was gone, and they were both worn out and thirsty. And I can only imagine the harsh thoughts that Hagar had for Abraham and Sarah. As you think about it, it is the price of Abraham and Sarah's sin. These two out there dying of thirst. It was a woman and a young man dying of thirst and the hunger in a barren desert. Now I can also imagine the thoughts of Hagar could have had for the God that she had found out on the desert the last time that she had run away from the harsh treatment of Sarah. She had obeyed God and she had gone back to Sarah only to be cast out again. So was God abandoning her and her son? Did she say as most of us would, God, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. Why am I having to suffer so much? What about your promises, God, about my son becoming a nation? And yet God always keeps his promises. Verses 17 through 21 says, And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called Hagar out of the heavens and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. 
and he dwelt in the wilderness of Haran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So here we see Hagar being caught up. God, in wonderful grace, came to the woman to minister personally and directly to her needs. God saved Hagar and Ishmael and sent them on their way to fulfill their destinies. Now notice that verse 20 tells us, And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. That means that he became a hunter. And he lived in the wilderness. And the scripture says that his mother provided him a wife out of Egypt, or out of the world. Remember, anytime you talk about Egypt, you're really talking about the world. So here we see the path that Ishmael has chosen for himself. He mocked the spiritual things of Abraham, and he took the things of the world into his heart. And then we move on, and I'm running out of time, but I'm going to go ahead and finish here. We move on to Abraham and Abimelech at Beersheba, verses 22 and 20, uh, through 24. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol the chief captain of his host spoke unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. Now, why would Abimelech think that Abraham might lie to him? Do you have any examples of that? Yeah. Yeah. But, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Well, this tells us that Abimelech had been watching Abraham, and he saw the way that God blessed him and prospered him in all things. And so we see Abimelech's plea. Abraham asked of Abraham, Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. And Abimelech is really afraid of Abraham and looks at him through eyes of someone who normally distrusts those that they are afraid of. Abraham, with no animosity in his heart, only regret for the way that he had testified to Abimelech about God, simply says, okay, whatever you say, I swear. Verses 25 and 20 through 27. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not who hath done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. Now here we see Abimelech's pledge. Abraham had dug a well in dry land, and it was something of value that the men of Abimelech had taken away by force. i got to remember, Abraham was the man who conquered the kings of the east and before whom the king of Sodom bowed. And yet, he had suffered this loss quietly. Now, whether Abimelech is telling the truth about not knowing anything about this event is really questionable. I doubt that he really didn't know anything. But he pledges to give back what was rightfully Abraham. Verses 33 through 34, And Abraham planted a grove at Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Now notice that we are given another name for God right here in these verses. It says, And called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now the word everlasting is translated from a Hebrew word that is used to describe the eternal duration 
of the being of God. Psalms 90 uh, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. But now it also is the Hebrew synonym for the Greek word aeon, meaning age. So the everlasting God name is used to describe the God whose wisdom has divided all time and eternity into the mystery of successive ages and dispensations. It is not just that God is everlasting. He is God over everlasting things. Our God is truly the one and only everlasting, all-powerful God of the universe. Our God is a God of kept promises and grace to those who believe on Him. Our God is able to provide everlasting life to us because He is the God over everlasting things. The God of everlasting. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so that was a nice story today, right? That was a nice story with a lot of good lessons in it, right? With a lot of good lessons.